welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Jeff Wellstead. Jeff is the CEO of Big Bear Partners and Chief Strategy Officer of GTM Hub. Jeff is an expert in helping rapidly growing or hypergrowth startups manage their people challenges effectively. Before moving into consulting, Jeff was the VP of Global HR at Message Labs and the Global Director of HR at Spinbox. In both roles, Jeff was responsible for helping these rapidly growing startups overcome the people challenges that they faced as they grew and continue their hypergrowth trajectories. In the case of Spinbox, Jeff oversaw the ninefold expansion of the team from just 50 people to over 450 in under two years. As a consultant, Jeff works with organizations to create the environment to allow their people to thrive and succeed at work while supporting the founding teams in overcoming the strategic challenges that they face as hypergrowth startups. We cover some really interesting topics in this conversation, including how Jeff and the team at Spinvox grew so quickly and the challenges they faced along the way, the people and cultural challenges that hypergrowth startups face, and the warning signs that you need to watch out for if you're currently growing a business, the importance of employee experience in today's world, and what you should be thinking about if you're looking to recruit and retain the top talent in the industry. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jeff, and it was great to hear him share his actionable insights and experiences on topics such as culture, which many people struggle with, but rarely know how to deal with or change effectively. Now, I could go on, but I think that's enough from me. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Wellstead. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here, Nick. Thanks. So it's great to have you on. And uh, for my listeners' context, we were introduced by a good friend of mine, Karina Brown, who I'm sure will we'll come on to more around what she's doing, but she's working on a really innovative and exciting startup in the employee experience space. And I know that's a, a big passion for you. And she introduced us because she said, Nick, Jeff is fantastic, worked in hyper-growth startup space for a long time, spent a lot of time growing and scaling startups. And I'd be really keen to just start there, really, Jeff, and understand it's a world that people get quite excited about. And I think right now, startups are very in vogue and everyone wants to be working in one. Be great to find out how you actually got into hyper-growth, so rapid-growth startups. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest. I don't think I did it on purpose. It wasn't by design that I did that. But in truth, I think I fell into it and spent the first half of my career in and around New York City uh, for about 18 years, working mostly with big multinational brands in consulting and investment banking, a little bit in pharma, but got a call from a dear friend of mine who was a former colleague uh, when I worked at PeopleSoft, where we worked at PeopleSoft together. And he um, he called me up and he said, look, I, I took on this job uh, over here in England, and I'm brilliant at finance. I'm brilliant at kind of the technology end of the equation, but it turns out all my problems are people problems. <laughs> and I could really use some help. Uh, you know, would you consider potentially coming over and doing an international stint and, uh, and we'll sort you out with this, that, and the other? And I said, yeah, no, absolutely. Let's, let's have a, have a go with it. I'd done a bunch of work with British colleagues in the past from New York City and been over once or twice, but frankly, yeah, to kind of come over and live over here would be brilliant. So that's basically what how I got myself into message labs at the time and started working uh, starting working with with that startup so we'll come on to actually what you did there and what you've done since I, I want to just touch on that piece around 
moving moving continents? Because I know travel is something a number of people think about and sort of international secondments in some firms are, are things that people look to do. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you were in big corporates up until that point. When, when you got off the phone, what, what were your initial thoughts? What were the questions you asked yourself about whether this was the right move to make? <laughs> yeah, it's an extraordinarily good point. The funny thing about it was being an American and, and sharing a common language, I thought would kind of make everything quite easy. And, mm. and I figured there wouldn't be that many differences between us. I'd be able to kind of get, get up to speed quite quickly. And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, as George Bernard Shaw, you know, once said, eloquently he said you know america and britain are are two countries separated by a common language and he and he wasn't he wasn't wrong about that i think almost everything i said i felt like i put my mouth uh, my foot in my mouth i uh, everything had some kind of a weird innuendo that i was entirely unaware of i can't i can't go into those right now i think it'd possibly be um, ill-advised uh, to get into some of the uh, some of the terminology but I thought I was being perfectly innocent in saying a couple of things, sometimes in front of large groups of people. And uh, I would get pulled aside afterwards being told, mate, that's that's not really, that's not cricket. You know, you're not meant to say that. You're meant to go, you know, this is what that actually translates into. I was like, oh my God. So there was immediately um, some interesting language differences. Um, there mm. were also a number of nuances in terms of just general behavior. And in America, you're kind of brought up to be quite charismatic. You're brought up to be quite assertive in terms of your positioning on things. And, you know, frankly, all of that stuff worked against me over here initially. And I had to learn the hard way, basically, how to kind of adopt my behavior to a different culture and and immerse myself in a place where I was clearly the minority. And, uh, and, quite, and quite frankly, they weren't going to put up with it and, and, and had a lot of fun at my expense, which I think, frankly, is what saved me is our mutual senses of humor and ability to laugh at ourselves because I learned a hell of a lot that way. And I think that's a real, a real learning for me, which is be open, laugh at yourself. Do not be precious in the least about who you think you are, where you think you've come from and whether or not, you know, you need to kind of create some kind of a stature with the people around you. If you want to blend in, you want to learn fast, you want to be accepted and uh, be effective. Importantly, just be you with modesty and be humble and be willing to kind of accept feedback and criticism. So yeah, that was <laughs> really interesting. You picked up on that. It was, yeah, a night and day experience. And uh, it was a bit of a shocker because I did not, I didn't rate that at all or prioritize <laughs> any of that on the way over. I thought this will be, this will be a piece of cake. <laughs> not. <laughs> and the other side of the move, obviously, like you said, there's the moving from the US to the UK and Part of me wants to ask about some of the um, the innuendos you did say, but like you say, maybe maybe we'll do that offline after this. Is actually also the work culture because, like you said, you spent that first half of your career in big corporates, and you moved to to the startup space, so a small firm based in Gloucester over here in the UK. Yeah, how did you find that element of the shift, or was there a shift from moving? It took me a long time. Arguably, it's taken me, you know, four or five years to really feel like I fit in, that I'm using <laughs> the idioms and, and colloquialisms <laughs> intelligently and in the right context <laughs> to fit in more importantly with a culture that says, we don't necessarily go rushing into everything over here. We like to have a considered think through. Uh, we'd like to get more of a consensus. We'd like to see what our competition is doing. We'd like to kind of keep an eye on things. And I have to say, from a consulting perspective, that has been really challenging for me. It's a very different cultural approach 
I think it differs where you, whatever you go in Europe, but for the most part, there is a conservatism that says we are not just going to run into something for the sake of doing it. Whereas in America, you know, everything was like, let's try it. And if we break it, hey, you know, that's great. Let's let's clean ourselves off and, and try again. So it's just a very different kind of mentality, but mm. it does make it does make my approach to consulting one that is a good deal more considered and force forcibly slowed versus my you know working with my American colleagues. And that difference in approach is, is that back to your point around is that just a cultural difference between Brits and Americans, or is there something else that that you've seen that drives that approach or drives that difference in approach? Well, so it's a couple of things. It's also the context of the consulting I do, which is primarily in sort of change, you know, deep change and transformation in the talent strategy space. So I'm, I'm, I'm typically going into organizations that, that have asked for answers around, we know we should be doing more intelligent things in the talent space. We know that we are arguably behind in some way, shape or form, or we want to change or we want to leapfrog the competition. So there's always some imperative tentatively laid out that says, we know we need to change, we're just not sure why and or certainly not how. And then for me to go in and tell people their baby is ugly, that my assessment has has shown that, yeah, you are potentially woefully behind in this, that or the other, if I'm, you know, if I'm just being perfectly honest with them, carefully couched in terms that certainly don't point out the fact that there are some personality concerns or issues or anything like that. This is simply an issue of how the function is operating in, in service mm. of the business and in service of the employees. And then, you know, you have to typically kind of lay it all out for folks and, and it's often not pretty. So you have to do that with a level of respect, with a level of reservation, using the right words and the right language so as not to necessarily set people off. They're already very defensive, typically about to hear the fact that, yeah, we know it's broken. Uh, it's been broken for a long time. We frankly have been covering it up as best we could and, and kind of holding things together with glue and spit and wire. And it's not working anymore. We get that. But now we got to go fix it. How do we go about doing that? And there's, you know, so it's it can be challenging in terms of taking people on that journey. I want to come back to the point there, because I will definitely, we're going to come on to the challenges now and to your point around telling people their babies are ugly and actually what is it that's ugly about them. Mm. You mentioned sort of right back at the beginning that your friend called you and said, we have people problems at Method Lab, Message Lab, sorry. Be really interested to actually, as much as you can share, find out what was it you were sort of walking into there and actually what, how did you turn it around? So, <laughs> yeah, so very quickly, I was walking into two companies that were basically held together by a parent company. I was walking into a legacy ISP, uh, internet service provider, primarily for the SME or small to medium-sized enterprise market that basically had then, over the course of time, spawned a further uh, product enhancement around email security and spam detection and antivirus uh, detection. And uh, it, it was basically on the back of this legacy 10-year-old or 12-year-old internet service provider that kind of then generated the need for this other company, which interestingly turned out to be the one big moneymaker for the organization. So here there were these two companies uh, operating in slightly different orbits, physically near one another, but doing very different things. Message Labs was being prepared at the time potentially either for an IPO um, mm. to actually raise more cash and, and drive more product introduction. It's a very, very good product. For the first time, it ever worked for a company that used machine learning and heuristic logic from a, almost from an AI, I guess you could almost call it AI perspective, to detect viruses in the cloud before they then potentially contaminated our clients. 
So it was quite clever stuff. And they were preparing that company for a potential acquisition, which meant we had to be very clear on the break between the two of them. We also had to set Message Labs up as a, a winning organization, but operating lean, mean, and, and making great things happen and looking as attractive as it possibly could do to the market, the potential market. And then also set Star up potentially to be separated from Message Labs. So there was a heck of a lot of strategic level stuff that needed fixing. But having said that, I basically also walked into what was what I guess I would characterize as a 1960s personnel department. It was run by a very capable lady, but I think they were, for the most part, doing very classic 1960s, 1970s HR types of things. And for, for those who aren't from a HR background, what does a 1960s personnel department look like? It was basically cordoned off from the rest of the organization behind a glass wall because that's what the regulations require. It was full of filing cabinets, lots of administration. It was all about hiring and firing. And it was all about, you know, kind of managing a couple of interim processes along the way, but mostly around things like, uh, you know, disciplinary issues, keeping us out of tribunals, being very, very particular about, you know, making sure people's visas were in order as you need to. So really kind of managing a lot of administration, compliance and governance, as is very normal for HR departments to kind of develop into, arguably because there's so much regulation to manage as well. And there is this notion of, you know, somebody's got to maintain these vendors around the hiring process. And we have to also make sure that when people leave, that they're dealt with respectfully because we just don't want to end up in tribunal that just clogs everything up. And so that's kind of what we end up falling back on. And that's that's what the department, for the most part, did. And my remit going into it, as it was laid out for me by the founders, was to change it up was to basically really get this company excited about itself. Let's really get smart about how we measure people's ability to perform and deliver. But importantly, let's start giving them a t the tools to learn and really develop themselves. So they wanted me, as an example, to build an entire training organization and a training facility in the uh, company. And they basically wanted to just reinvent everything there was to know about, about HR. So we kind of set about doing that. Yeah, we ultimately ended up, you know, with a new performance process, linked training and development. We hired a couple of folks to kind of help us. We retooled our recruitment process, retooled our employer brand. There's just a million and a half little things that we kind of did to kind of really tweak the employee experience there, which I think, you know, put us in good stead to look attractive to number one, <laughs> some really difficult and top talent to find out in Gloucester because they're not falling out of trees over there. And it was also a way to re retain the right people to make sure that we would always maintain our attractiveness to potential buyers. So that was a, a pretty interesting ride, if I'm honest. Just a little bit of context for those listeners who are listening to this in the UK will, will be familiar with Gloucester and London. Those outside of it, and you can probably give me a better analogy for the States, but it's big city and I'll probably get told off for this, but Gloucester is sort of small town. And it is. No, you're right. There isn't a large city nearby, so I'm I'm based down in Bath, so I sort of know, know the area. You've got Bath, you've got Bristol. Gloucester's quite a way. Actually, how did you, what steps did you put in place to attract talent to somewhere that on the face of it is not somewhere that, like you said, sort of employees looking for tech startup jobs would would really want to go and work. <laughs> yeah, that was super hard. Uh, I have to say that we, we had uh, an RPO, a recruitment process outsourcer, working with us when I joined. And frankly, they were, I think they were kind of falling down on the job pretty hard arguably because I think they were very regionally focused. So they were basically more out in the West Midlands in terms of a, a general focus. And, and arguably, if we're going to try to get you know top talent 
coming in from tech centers, you know, we had to be looking in Bristol, we had to be looking in London, Birmingham, Manchester, I mean, just about all around, and uh, arguably more the, the M4 corridor. So it was kind of London to Reading, possibly over to Swindon. Uh, there are some more companies in that direction. But this is this was a challenge back in 2004. There just wasn't that spread of, of technological talent that was propping up all over the place. I mean, today, you know, it's laughable. You could, you know, pick up the phone to, you know, anybody in Bristol and to Bath, to Swindon, to Sirencester, to you name it, local towns nearby. And everybody's had, you know, training in, in all sorts of de- development and programming. It's just rather pervasive today. But back then, we had to really kind of entice people to working in a cool, fun, lovely town. So it was very much around a lifestyle change. It was very much around, Come and join an incredible mission. This is a company that is well ahead of its time. People outside of the company really struggled to kind of understand why we were so spectacularly different than other kind of antivirus companies. But we were starting to now find global viruses at a very early stage and then report and kind of becoming the meteorologist, if you will, to the rest of the antivirus community that, you know, we found a couple, you might want to watch out for this stuff. And people were tuning into what we were all about. We were expanding globally in a number of different markets. So you could get people really excited about the journey you were on, the mission you were on, the successes you were having. And it just kind of felt like, oh, you know, we're on to a winner here. And frankly, this is well after, you know, stock options were, you know, kind of handed out willy nilly. That just didn't happen anymore. The company had been around long enough that I think the stock option pool was more or less satiated. And um, and that was not necessarily going to be an enticement. We definitely paid competitive salaries. We weren't silly about that. We had good benefits as well. And frankly, again, we kind of really pushed the fact that we were a learning culture. We were a performance-driven culture. We were, you know, very closely tied to one another, very strong kind of bond between us all. And uh, we were all heading toward greatness. And if you want to be on this ride, tuck in. You're going to work with some brilliant people, do some incredible things. And that was, you know, (laughs) that was my first entree into you know, people getting excited about about doing brilliant work as your primary motivator, as opposed to purely about money, stock options, and all the other traditional Silicon Valley stuff that you uh, you typically chase after. And I think that's actually quite a nice place to segue onto onto your next role, because that again, rapid startup growth. You were at the helm for a huge amount of recruitment and developing the the function there. And to your point around people being excited about what they do and not just about the stock options. Mm. Could you, for my listeners' benefit, just explain where you ended up next and, and the growth story that that took you on? That was an interesting one. I got pulled into, I guess, what was sort of the tail end of a recruitment process with a founding uh, CEO, eight o'clock on a Friday night, walking through an arguably just refurbished boathouse down on Maidenhead, right on the Thames River, to be interviewed as the potential global head of HR for this burgeoning new company called Spinvox, which basically was converting voicemail into text using you know natural language processing and, and some machine learning and so forth. But you know, initially with some pretty significant human intervention. I had no idea, frankly, what the CEO was on about. I really struggled to understand why this was a thing. <laughs> And I wanted, I wanted like hell to, to really get excited about this mission. I, that's what typically drives me. Mm. And she kind of like got up on a whiteboard and she was showing me how this all was going to work. And I was like, hold on a minute. Is this, is this actually going to work? I mean, how does this technology actually kick in? Anyway, we went back and forth on it all. And she ultimately convinced me that this is going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a huge growth story. It's going to be well above and beyond the 35 people that they had stuck in a boathouse down in Maidenhead. 
arguably with all their servers as well. So probably not the best way to manage a data center early days, but you know, needs must. And I took the job. I literally was hired on the spot and I tucked in the following Monday, which I believe was July 4th, 2006. I I was feeling a bit resentful that I didn't have that day off as I typically did back in the States, but there you go. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I was just literally sat as a sole HR contributor at a fairly advanced age. Uh, Again, I couldn't find, I couldn't believe I found myself here doing this, but it was literally an invention from scratch. What what did she, what, what did that CEO say? You mentioned you, you didn't really see the the mission at that point. You didn't really get it. What, What did she show you on the whiteboard or say that convinced you to, to make like, like you said, quite a quite a big leap. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> I guess when she basically said, "Look, this this is going to basically corner the market on voice recognition technology within the mobile uh, phone arena," and then she started throwing numbers in the billions around how this is not. You understand, two thousand and four. This is before the smartphone thing was mm. really a thing, and we were still working on Nokia's. You know, it, it basically texting. You know, by pressing our, our keypads. For the kids in the audience listening in um <laughs> and so uh yeah i was sort of like well you know this this is a time when basically she was inventing a functionality that didn't exist using really complex difficult technology and she said look the remit is going to be i need to go find the brightest people on the planet to know how to go do this stuff can you tell me you can go find those people so immediately my, my hackles are up, right? And my pride is is in danger of being damaged. And I'm like, hell yeah, I can find those people, man. I just came off of, off of message labs, you know what I mean? We found loads of those type of people. She goes, yeah, this will be different. But uh, but nonetheless, at least we're closer to closer to, to London and we'll sort it out. But I'm going to need you to work all hours, night and day. I mean, you basically will kind of become a you know, de facto COO kind of individual for a period of time till we get to a point where we're kind of then having to scale it up. But there is, everything's broken. Everything needs fixing, and I need somebody to tuck in and basically grow this business, arguably 300% year over year, and do this. I suddenly started getting excited. I was like, right. And stock options were involved. <laughs> um, so it was going to be a wild ride. I mean, the salary was quite fair. I think uh, you know the founders, Christina and Daniel, were always exceedingly fair with compensation. They were never shorting people on that. And we had to, frankly, to kind of grab the best people. But I was talking people for the rest of my experience here over the course of the next three years, I was talking perfectly powerful, you know, kind of executives out of extremely good jobs and basically telling them to go home and tell their wives and husbands, yeah, I just quit, honey. I'm going to go work for a company you've never heard of. (laughs) And I can't believe how good I got at it. Um, But I loved it. I mean, the remit was amazing. And I wasn't lying to people about what we were doing, but it was going to be a game changer. And we were selling back to the major telcos this incredible capability. So anyway, yeah, I got excited about the mission, I have to say, above all else. And uh, it was a hell of a ride. So many bits to pick up. And I I think we'll, we will start to get into the, the consulting side because I can hear where some of these things have come from. I, I do just want to touch on that point you mentioned around, I think, the growth at Spinbox and actually how you did that. You know, We went from everything being broken to 450 people in just over two years. And, and I want to touch on that. But that point around finding the best people, and you mentioned convincing executives to, to come over, because I think so. a number of my listeners run their own consulting firms or uh, have aspirations too. How in those early days, when, like you say, you were 35 people, give or take, you were at a sort of unproven technology that people may have questioned in the market, how did you convince people to to join? And were there were there any commonalities or 
Was there a, a similar patter, if you like, that you, you almost honed over that time? How did, you, how did you convince people if you were looking back? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And uh, it was definitely a formula where, wherein I was simply, and I didn't realize it possibly at the time, but I was really playing, playing very hard toward the things that were, that were particularly personally motivating to them. So on part of it, it was all the sort of critical intrinsic motivators around things like autonomy, a sense of progress, a sense of fairness, a sense of excitement and, uh, and kind of personal aspiration, uh, a sense of significance. These were all things I was I was kind of playing on, and I've only kind of learned more about that in recent in recent years and in, in, in my studies and in, in becoming more of a uh, a consultant that is that's savvy to that level of research. So there was that element. The other element that was uh, that was exciting was I was playing to the fact that people were typically that I was chasing were typically coming out of large telcos, out of major companies like Google, out of out of some very interesting and innovative environments that were so big that they had forgotten how to be personal, that they had forgotten how to, I guess, create an experience for the individuals in that organization, which took them on their own exciting journey. And they basically had lost touch with what was important in that organization. And it was simply over the course of time, all about quarterly earnings. It was around cost control. It was around risk management. It was around politics. It was around all the things, quite frankly, that most human beings really find appalling and more importantly, soul destroying. Mm. And so I was basically playing to that, to that issue uh, for folks simply by listening, number one, to their current experience and, and what they love so much about their current role. And oftentimes it was a very short conversation. They, you know, I mean, the most innovative people, I, I was thinking about one chap in particular who I pulled out of uh, Vodafone's innovation team, the head of the innovation team. And, you know, he and I went back and forth on the phone several times. And uh, you know what? He ultimately had to give up. He could not find a reason to stay mm. that would compete with my reason to join our particular mission. And I wasn't, I wasn't lying to him. I, I was telling him, look, we are on to something really powerful here and it is game changing. And importantly, you will have all the autonomy in the world to basically build your team and to create what you need to create to go make that happen. You know, that hits people in a certain way. That's, it's like releasing them from the solitary confinement uh, kind of scenario or, or sensation that they typically have in their current, current roles. But equally, I was getting people out of places like Google which you would have thought would have been all over, you know, this kind of employee experience. But, you know, again, the challenge there was is that these entrepreneurs who had joined early days and I hired the number four employee in EMEA uh, for Google away from Google after they had grown to about 3000 people in EMEA. And she was like, you know, it's not the same anymore. You know, it's not it's not cool like it was. You know, we can do whatever we want to. You know what? Yeah, I'll come talk to you. And, and the minute she did, we were like, we fell in love with each other and we had to, we had to pull her in and uh, she was all about it. So I just did that over and over again. I hired, you know, one of the top creatives from MTV. I hired one of the top CFOs from Vodafone <laughs> and got a couple of nasty phone calls from the CEO. Um, was not particularly pleased with that acquisition. I hired a note, load of people from a company called Nuance, uh, which was this massive, you know, aggregator of voice recognition technology in the U.S. who ultimately ended up buying and acquiring a Spinbox. Yeah. So I, I kind of angered a lot of corporates by taking some of their better talent. But you know what? These are people who are desperate for waking up uh, and they wanted to be heard again. They wanted to create. They wanted to be in an environment where they could really 
you know, show their stuff and, and be recognized for it. And that's all that mattered. I mean, money was always a thing, of course. Stock options are always a thing. But you know what? Arguably, it didn't come down to that at the end of the day. The decision was made on, I can, I can really do this. You're not going to fool me. I'm going to walk in the door and you're going to put me in a cage. You know what I mean? It's like, nope. You know, this is yours to create. So, <laughs> yeah, it was exciting. It was, it was good fun. And how did you, as the firm grew, maintain those elements that, to your point there, enticed those people in? So you, you mentioned a couple of times that you weren't lying to these people. That was what the firm was like and the autonomy they'd get, that, that fulfillment doing something entrepreneurial. How did you maintain or how did that environment evolve as the firm grew? Yeah, oh, it was an interesting challenge, right? And this was my first first experience in in sort of a hyper growth company that came from you know 35 40 people on through to what eventually was something like 450 at one point and what you notice very quickly is things get hard about the sort of 80 to 100 person mark suddenly you go from knowing everybody's name and and sitting next to everybody you need to talk to and reach out to to suddenly forgetting who people are, not sure who's handling this anymore. I think we've had a couple of personnel changes, some ins and outs. I'm not sure who's been hired to kind of go do that. And now here I'm the HR guy, right? I mean, I'm doing most of this hiring, this direct face-to-face hiring, and I'm starting to forget, you know, who it is who's actually meant to be doing what. So on top of doing all of this, you know, hyper-growth recruitment, I'm also spending loads of time with the founders and various department heads on organizational design. And I kid you not, we were doing this every day. And we were constantly, constantly focused on, you know, how is it we are going to ensure that, for instance, IT infrastructure can keep up with the pace of development on the product side? How is it we're going to acquire a team in Cambridge, basically to become our our new kind of uh, technology lab? And how are we going to physically and logistically connect them to the offices down here in Maidenhead, which then ultimately moved to Marlow, because they're not going to move. You know, they've got families up there and everything else. They're going to build a micro team up there. How are we going to you know, make that happen? And how do we ensure there's the proper collaboration? I mean, there was a million little things that kind of screamed at us. Oh, God, guess what? It's time to start maturing. You know, we got to stop this crazy entrepreneurial thing where it's like six-year-olds on a on a football field where everybody's chasing the ball. <laughs> you know what I mean? Inclu- including the yeah. goalies. <laughs> yeah. And now, so that doesn't work anymore. So now we actually have to stay in our positions and we have to learn how to pass the ball intelligently to each other. Now it's getting harder because you know competitors are starting to to crop up, and you know kind of people who are competing with us on a talent basis are starting to get edgy, and it's getting harder to get the right people in. It's getting more expensive. It's getting harder than to organize ourselves internally to go do the next several different iterations of product development we need to. So it was it was challenging, mate. On on all sorts, we we call that interestingly Dunbar's number. When you reach about a hundred people in an organization thereabouts, you really start to struggle with your ability to kind of get stuff done on the fly. You can't mm. just walk down the hallways, raise your hand, say, "Everybody, listen up! This is what we're going to do." We did a lot of that. But it really wasn't practical after a while. It just got a little bit, a little bit difficult, a little bit challenging. So you have to pay attention to what replaces a cult of personality around the founders to then a cult of personality around product. And and then the next level is we've now got to create a cult of connection around the company. And that's when culture for the first time comes into play. And culture needs to be solidified, not just around the behavior 
of the senior managers in the organization. That's very much a tell and very much something people watch very closely. But it actually is, how do we make decisions here? And are we, you know, what kinds of values do we basically communicate through our actions? And if, in fact, you are, you are not intentional about setting that up, um, you will potentially start sending many wrong signals out to your organization, which can really throw you into a wobble. And as an example of that, if the founders are having a particularly bad day and they decide to pick up their laptop and smash it on their desks and walk out, you know, for a half hour walk and then come back in and basically say to the IT person, do me a favor, get me another one of those. Do you know what I mean? I just had a moment. Sorry about that, folks. If they even apologize and they just plop down on their desk and they get on with things and everybody's kind of sat there looking at each other like, is that cool? Is that a thing we can do? Because God knows I like to throw my freaking laptop through the window as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and so that's the kind of stuff you have to, to start to think about. What kind of company do we want to be? How are we going to create an extensible relationship with one another? How are we going to make decisions? How are we going to deal with the tough times? Very importantly, not just the good times. How are we going to have difficult conversations with each other about whether or not we're having a good day or a bad day? How do we walk people out the door who are no longer fit for purpose? How do we treat new people coming in? And do we get clicky about it? Or are we going to be accepting and warm? You know, those kinds of things suddenly enter into it. And if you don't think about that stuff intentionally and shape it early days, it can kill your company. And and just to, so that I'm clear, that's the cult of connection level. So those elements yeah. you've just described. There is a, am I am I right? It's it's the almost the codification, be it formally or informally, of some of those cultural elements, like you said there, around how do we behave around here? What do we do with new people? What do we do with people yeah. who are leaving? Those sort of elements. You know what it is. To be honest with you, it's very much like the structure and the origins of religions, right? Okay. So you take the origins of Christianity. It was all at the time very much around a cult of personality. It was a connection to a guy named Jesus Christ, right? Or Jesus of Nazareth, I guess. And it was really interesting how he had a close number of followers, right? The uh, the apostles. And do I have that right? <laughs> I think uh, I, anyway, uh, disciples. Run disciples it. is what I meant to disciples, say. So the yeah. disciples. Um, and it was this notion of, you know, these are the, the core people who believe in my vision and they're learning as they go. And so am I. But, we're, you know, we're on this mission and we're going to start changing things up. Now I'm going to start traveling around and telling people about what we're on about. And in the process of doing that, what's happening is I'm starting to kind of spread the focus on, on the product, if you will. Uh, and, and people are starting to stand up and pay attention. Okay, this is getting serious. Now the issue becomes one of we are no longer, you know, 100 people doing this. We are suddenly 5,000 people doing this. And then, you know, folks like Constantine and, and others have to get involved and say, guys, you know, we need some <laughs> we need a lot. We, we need a Bible here. <laughs> we got to put these stories down on paper. You know, we need to codify things to your point. We need a church. We need rules around how people behave and all of this. I mean, we need to put a lot of things in motion without killing the whole imagery of Jesus Christ, without just wiping that out, because that is the essence of why this religion exists in the first place. So we still want to kind of maintain our entrepreneurial spirit. We want to, you know, maintain our a sense of, of excitement in life, uh, and reason and purpose. That's why I joined. That's why I quit my perfectly good job and took a, took it in the year from you know my partner at home for putting us our financial situation at risk potentially. Um, and um, yeah, I can't lose sight of that. But 
we have got to grow up uh, because if we don't, here's what's going to happen. Our board will start to get really frustrated with us. Our shareholders and investors, importantly, will start to potentially take their money elsewhere and or question us very hard and focus us on things that are not core to product delivery and customer care. Yeah, we could lose our way very, very quickly. So that's why you need to kind of, again, to your point, codify that stuff. And so just... Just so I've got the levels clear, you, you mentioned around that first transition point of the 80 to 100 people, which is, I guess, the founder, cult of the founder to cult of the product. Yeah. Yeah. And and product, I take here to mean, to take Spinvox, your your product was something that took voice messages and turned them into text messages. And yeah. that's what people get behind. When's that next transition point? So 80 to 100 takes you to the cult of the product, and we, we, we can come on to some of the challenges there. But when was that next step for you or in businesses that you've worked with in general that take them to that cult of the connection, having to to codify as we talked about? Yeah, so the next dangerous thing, two things. One is when you start to realize that you need core infrastructure elements to support the growth of your organization. And it's funny, it almost always hits you by surprise. It's like, oh God, yeah, now we need an IT department. We only ever had the one or two, you know, two guys. They were always, for some reason, two guys. And they were holding it together again with with spit and wire. But God, if that if that server you know stack went down, we were done. So suddenly it, it all got quite serious. And so we needed to kind of develop the infrastructure to kind of then keep the product up and running. And then suddenly customers, oh man, there's loads and loads of customers. What are we going to do about that? Oh yeah, okay, we need a customer service department. Um, we need people on the phones. We need to actually have a way in which we're meant to be handling these calls. We should possibly have call management tools to kind of go track this stuff. On and on. I mean, so you just end up adding all of these different components as you go. That's thing one. Thing two is globalization. So very quickly, when you are building your products out, especially in, you know, if you're if you're talking about a global tech solution, you need to sometimes have local representatives. So we were hiring people in places like Germany and France, uh, Spain, South America, Australia. I think we even had a person, some folks in Hong Kong, if I'm not mistaken. Can't remember now. We had them all over the place. And that geographic dispersion, as I call it, really challenged the core culture. How do you basically pull people in who you've just talked out of perfectly good jobs in local markets to now basically come out of that job and sell back into that entity? That was sort of our, our strategy around that. And basically get them to also understand what Spinbox is all about and how to live the Spinbox dream, but ultimately have your own particular flavor and and local color if you will to add to the montage that that was becoming spinvox global and it was weird man it was a really strange thing it sounds funny but it's like you start hiring people in foreign countries in countries foreign to your headquarters location and very quickly things can start to wobble these people are out there like in the wild west on the frontier these people are sailing you know across oceans unknown and wobble in what what way well because if you you know you're trying to kind of basically the the whole idea behind hiring those people in the first place was to reach out to and develop global markets in a very extensible, very kind of formulaic way. Having said that, you have no sense of what that formula actually is, aside from some some core basic business ideas as you're setting it up. So you're hiring these people, almost hoping beyond hope, not only are you a good salesperson and you're going to help us expand into your local market, 
but please tell me you also know how to kind of set up a local office. You know how to go hire some other talent. You're not going to make stupid decisions. You're not going to act badly, behave badly toward, you know, potential new customers. Please tell me you're going to actually help us live this dream of, of expanding globally uh, and doing that well. And um, listen, you know, you can't always tell. It's not like you can always, you have all the money in the world to keep flying people back and forth. We did, you know, certainly a, a fair amount of that. But um it was hard for those people to stay connected to what was happening at headquarters. And it was just, there were just different vibes. They were, they were loners. They were out there trying to kind of make it happen. So that cultural element, we then turned to an advantage by basically really hyping up and building an internal intranet site and internal newsletter and basically really hyping up the cool stuff that our, our foreign partners, our foreign correspondents, you know, were, were doing down in Australia. And they were brilliant people. Very creative, sent back loads of fascinating pictures about, you know, where they lived and where they worked and, and the companies they were selling into. And it really made it come to life for people and further kind of lifted our spirits and made us feel like, oh, my God, we're making it. You know, like this is really coming true. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, so it was very exciting from that perspective. But those are the two things. I think going global where people are out of sight, potentially out of mind. Uh, dangerously and then having to build infrastructure uh, to support you know your your core efforts and then to that point of ensuring you keep that entrepreneurial element that made people join while you build this infrastructure and build all of these elements around codifying that cult of connection what challenges did you or have you since had in in balancing that tension and maybe there correct me if there isn't a tension but it almost feels implied that as you codify and put in structure, you limit the entrepreneurial element, or some people might think that. Yep. How were you mindful to mitigate that, or, or was that something you needed to mitigate? No, it's a very good question. It's a, it's a thing. I mean, listen, your startup is about one thing, and it's about tension. <laughs> the tension never leaves. Every day, every night, you have tension, and you're lucky to sleep an entire night without it kind of creeping into your, your dream space. That's in one, in one part, sort of the magic of, of startup land and startup world, which is there's an adrenaline rush all the time. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it ain't so good, but it's always a learning experience. And that tension was always there. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we said to each other, let's never lose the spirit of what we were uh, back in the day in that boathouse in Maidenhead. You know, when we could just yell at each other and have fun and throw throw things at each other. And it was just a laugh. You know what I mean? We we need to kind of keep that 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 uh, I'm trying to come up with a French French expression for it, but it's like it's that that sense of of instantaneous familial connectivity where you know listen we were going to go through hard fun crazy nutty funny times together and and that was all good this was an extension of family to suddenly we're an extension of professionals trying to get a pretty complex thing delivered on a global basis so we listened we had loads of kind of annual parties we would fly people back in from you know all over the world to kind of join us in that we again kind of spent a lot of time storytelling with one another people would share stories around the successes and failures so we had sort of an agile kind of approach to the the sort of retrospective sharing if you will with one another which was really important the wins were super exciting so we would be traveling like i I was traveling at one point to New York City, and I saw an advertisement for Vonage, which is a company that's now since, I think, made some inroads over here. And, you know, there's our product up on the screen. And I'm in a, you know, I'm in a sports bar in New York City. I'm like, how cool is that? 
do this. <laughs> you know, I have arrived. Um, so you have to kind of share that excitement, which I did instantly, you know, with a with a huge text out to everybody going, oh, my God, you're not going to believe what I just saw. And uh, and just it was just a sense of let's let's keep the family and let's keep the human in this process. Look, this will get harder and harder over the course of time. And we need to mature processes. We have to make sure that we are hitting those inflection points with skill. Otherwise, they're going to potentially throw us out of the boat, and and we can't have that. So we were creative about it. We were open about it. We took suggestions from all over. Everybody was on equal footing in terms of their contribution. And then it, and then it really got hard, you know, in 2008, you know, frankly, when the market shut down. You know, so that October of 2008, I remember very well when I was looking for new property to move into in New York City. And I got a phone call uh, from a, a friend of mine. The guy who hired me at Message Labs and he said, dude, have you seen the stock market lately? What are you doing looking for real estate? You should be running for cover. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I remember landing on my flight in there and I, I heard about Lehman Brothers being sold. I heard about Merrill Lynch being bought. I was like, what is going on? You know, the whole world was was kind of collapsing around us. And and that's when, you know, some tough decisions had to be made. But they were made, you know, again, with you know, with love initially where we could do, and then eventually it, it got difficult. The money started running out and the funding started running low. And um, and by then, frankly, I had moved on, uh, having made the decision I was too expensive for the company. And frankly, if they were going to start winding, I guess, shrinking themselves, you know, I was all about, you know, being there for the growth and driving that, that exciting activity and, and helping ramp that up. But I, I didn't need to be there for the retraction which looked like it was likely going to be fairly significant over the course. I mean, that, that, that financial crisis was not going away anytime soon, and the banks were closed. That was, that was them done. So it was basically either we were going to crush it from a revenue perspective or, uh, and make that happen and, and kind of survive on our own, or and unfortunately we weren't quite there yet. So we had, to, um, we had to kind of move away. We had to move toward potential an acquisition with, uh, with Nuance. So... Yeah, so that was kind of the direction we were we were heading. It was uh, it was an interesting up and down, you know, roller coaster ride, day in and day out. And I think that brings us nicely onto the next phase, which is is actually where you moved into consulting. And I, and I do want to find out about how you moved into it because it, consulting as a as a role and as a career is very different from being an in industry. I'll come back to the inflection points, and I think let's yeah, it'd be inter- it'd be good to start there. So, you, how did you actually move into the consulting space? Well, it was interesting. It was off the back of my uh, my move away from Spinfox. Uh, the founder, Christina, mm-hmm. she basically offered me up. She said, look, Jeff, in all honesty, with all of the scar tissue you've got, with all the experience you've got, you should really start your own consultancy at this stage. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that sounds like a plan. I mean, why not? I, mean, <laughs> I have no idea where the markets are going to be able to, to hold for us going forward. So anyway, she set me up, bless her, as part of my kind of redundancy package. She made sure that at least I had a, enough of a ramp, uh, not too much, but enough of a ramp to give it a go and put me in touch with a couple of her connections and said, look, you know, this is a friendly handover to you. Get tucked in and see if you can actually make something happen. And so I did, frankly, not having the first clue what to do other than what I what I had been doing, possibly as a consultant versus a full-time employee. I thought maybe that's what consulting is. I'm not entirely certain. And kind of threw myself headlong into it. It turned out that I was being challenged almost immediately to think otherwise around organizations. So one of the first things I got tucked into was working with Dialogue Semiconductor, who designed the power supply engineering for Apple products. And 
it was an SAP project. So they were going to basically bring SAP HR into the play. And in so looking at that, suddenly realized, boy, this is going to be weird because this doesn't really fit our structure. And in fact, the SAP tool is telling us to think differently about the way we are structured and offering us some best practice benchmarking advice. Why don't we take this opportunity possibly to correct our organically grown painful structure between the UK and Germany. It was a German-based company originally. And uh, and figure out how to solve for these things before we then kind of install a system that mimics what's bad. And I was like, yeah. ooh, light bulb moment. You know what I mean? And suddenly like, it occurs to me that you know what your job is, mate, is to actually take a look at situations that look a bit silly and call the emperor naked where you need to and uh, and make some suggestions and then co-create with them to basically come up with solutions that are going to work longer term, but importantly, are going to leave them a far better company than, you know, when you first arrived. And that's kind of what the light bulb moment was for me. I then got an offer to go work for Skype. At the time, this is just after Silver Lake Partners purchased Skype back from eBay. And uh, the remit there was this is an engineering-led company by a, a bunch of Estonian uh, programming pirates who were just be you know, brilliant people. Uh, we were the second largest employer of um, of technology talent in Estonia at the time Skype was. And <laughs> the issue was that um, they were having loads of fun with this product. And they were releasing things every day into production environments without testing, without QA, uh, quality assurance, and um, and ensuring that, you know, what was going to be launched, A, was something that anybody asked for. <laughs> There's an idea. And so we had a lot of kind of experimental concepts and ideas, some very good ones, mind you, of course, being introduced directly into the product in a live environment. And it was still very, it felt very experimental as, as, a, as a product. But a pretty good sized business had been built behind it. And this company needed to radically mature itself at speed in order to kind of be considered a, a serious, you know, investment and potential acquisition partner. So this, this was a massive undertaking. I got to work with Mark Gillette at, uh, who's a super bright guy from Silver Lake uh, Partners. And he hired me and basically to go help change the journey from being an engineering led challenge to a product management led organization that cared about the connection between the customer, the end user, and basically was building products that the world wanted to see that would basically make create a pull, you know, towards Skype. Skype was novel at the time. It was the first free video, you know, kind of peer to peer uh, compute approach to what well, we're on it right now, uh, doing yeah. what this thing does. And, and, and nobody else, frankly, was out there doing it. Um, and it was creating a whole new industry, but it needed to grow up and get serious fast about what it was and what it was to what it ultimately was going to deliver to the world. And I'll, I'll be honest, it fell apart literally every three minutes at best. You were lucky to kind of maintain a phone call for that long and with, a, you know, with less than half the functionality you see today. So, um, yeah, so we had to create product management as a discipline in the organization and basically introduce it to all the stuff that Silicon Valley companies have been doing for several years now to a company that, quite frankly, didn't really understand why it needed to change so radically. And it was a, it was fundamental. It was a real powerful change. So that was a huge uh, six month project on, on my behalf. But um, the, it kind of continued until ultimately Microsoft purchased them for, I think, 10, was it 8 million or I'm trying to remember. Eight billion or, or ten? But I can't remember what it was, but some some ridiculous number <laughs> that I think even shocks Silver Lake Partners, if I'm honest. Anyway, but it was a fascinating ride. It was a real look into how companies 
can grow organically at speed, create such success that the company doesn't stop to slow, it doesn't slow itself down long enough to say, are we doing it right? Are we, are we prepared for the next inflection point? Are we delivering products that we can be proud of? Are we more importantly delivering products that customers want more of um, and creating that viral effect? Uh, I can't tell you how often that goes horribly bad. And it's usually success, believe it or not, more than failure that is the danger um, that companies have nowadays. And and that might be the answer to, to the question I was going to ask around what is it that people need to be mindful of to know when an inflection point is coming? Or I guess the better way of asking it is what challenges do you see as people approach inflection points? Is it, as you say, as you said there, that it's actually people are so successful they they don't think about them until they're too late. What mm. what are those core challenges that this, the sort of hyper-growth businesses you work with face as they come towards those inflection points? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's not it's not as simple and formulaic as, as we'd like to hope. I wish it were. I mean, I think the Dunbar's number element is definitely a, a formulaic element that is very human as an archetype across the globe, across cultures, across industries. But the, the inflection points for startups, although you'll see some fancy consulting, you know, kind of infographics that, that think that, that they've got it all figured out. It has a lot to do with the fact when you're, you're looking to get a, a core thing done at the regular speeds that you're used to getting a thing done, that suddenly it's taking, you know, out of nowhere twice as long, three times as long, four times as long to get it done. When it does get done, it doesn't get done well. It gets done in a half-assed fashion. You can sense the tempo and mood uh, and tone of voice in people as they interact with each other. You can watch email behavior, interestingly. You suddenly start to see everybody getting CC'd on everything. Basically, it, it starts to kind of create this sort of, as I call it, the CYA syndrome or cover your ass, which is to make sure that, you know, as I'm sending things out, I know that I can't keep the floodwaters back anymore. It's only a matter of time before this dam bursts. I'm not getting listened to. I'm not getting the resource I need because apparently we don't have enough money again. And I just need to do more with less. And you know what? This is going to blow. And I'm going to CC everybody and their sister and brother and make sure that the world knows I said so <laughs> early on. You start to see that kind of behavior uh, kicking off. You also start to see politics in terms of cliques forming in the organization where people don't feel as universally accepted and connected in a familial style that they used to. And it's the combination of all of those things, as well as sort of some of the more obvious things, which then translate sadly into your commercial success, where you're getting more customer complaints. If you're smart enough to track those things, you're getting more uh, churn in terms of people just dropping you all together. Your revenue numbers are going down. It's getting harder to get partners and vendors on the phone. You know, it's it's a lot of little signals like that, which are suddenly if, if if you're paying attention and the latter ones are showing up, then potentially you are you're in real danger. You need to kind of back up quick and fix this. So it's those are the inflection points where you have to watch. And, and I think there's a natural tension, as you mentioned before. There's a very natural tension that needs to exist. It needs to be okay, frankly, for us to stretch ourselves to a limit that says this is our breaking point. Okay, got it. Understood. Let's go fix that very quickly now and kind of rush in with some extra resource, some extra money, some extra people. Uh, but let's make sure that those people know what they're meant to be doing. 
and then they're going there's going to be like this period of again you know a couple of days of clear sailing <laughs> when everything feels perfect everything feels like it's just moving along swimmingly and then suddenly it starts again you know the tension starts to build and build and build and by now you've got people kind of used to this this tension cycle and and they know to kind of call it out and they they know to kind of raise it with the founders and the, you know the money people and whoever it is that they need to uh to pull in to fix a thing so that's that's what I would say about inflection cycles, and they're in my experience in the startups I've worked with. I've you know I've seen as many as eight to ten of those things occur in the first you know five hundred people. As an example, it really depends. Sometimes it's only you know four of those uh, inflection points because you kind of hit it. Got a lot of professionals involved. They know to anticipate this stuff. They know how to basically manage through it. So you don't even notice some of them. It just flows seamlessly. And in other cases, man, you feel every one of them like you're going against the waves in a boat as a storm is approaching. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. It's like, God, this hurts. <laughs> anyway, but yeah. And just to that point of from the businesses you've worked with, some you don't feel those inflection points, some you do. Were there any commonalities between the businesses where you did feel them. So I'm thinking, was it, were there commonalities in terms of product type, in terms of organizational structure? Were there any commonalities or is it much more random than that? No, there are a load of commonalities. I don't mean, I don't mean to make it sound as if there are never repeats of these sorts of things and therefore no patterns emerging. There are loads of patterns emerging and there's a lot of consulting case study work out there that kind of talks about some of these things. So to parse them out and make sense of them, I think you kind of need to break them apart from the whole, but still consider the, the impact that the, the holistic system has on this thing. So there are talent issues. You know, there are different levels of talent that you need early days, pre-100 people, to the kinds of people that you need when you're 300 people. You know, you suddenly go from finding kind of daring-do pirates, early stage, I'll work for virtually nothing, maybe donuts, lots of coffee and drinks on Friday. I'm all about that, and I'll work 24-7 for you. To suddenly, that doesn't work when you're north of 100 people because we don't need superstar maverick maniacs, whatever you want to kind of couch them as anymore. We need people actually who are quite competent and quite settled and quite um, quite steady at the helm to kind of main, you know, take us through the next series of inflection points. And then suddenly you get to 300 people and you get a lot more investment money and you get a lot more attention in the markets and in the magazines and in the media. And people are like, you know what? We need to start hiring some corporate types. We need to hire some folks who have, you know, the, the names that others will recognize. And when they see people moving from, you know, larger stable environments to, to our particular environment, they're going to feel at ease that good, some grownups are moving in and they're going to help them get through this next, next phase of growth. And they're going to do so, you know, with intelligence, they're going to do so with good planning and they're going to actually deliver what they said on the tin. So, you know, that's kind of how you have to drive that. That's a talent, that's a talent life cycle. Then you got, you know, the sales life cycle again, early days, it's like sell anything everywhere and, you know, create a lot of hype and educate your market, create a sense of, I'm missing out. You know, you're you're going to miss it. What is that FOMO? Uh, fear of missing out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you got to create your FOMO and, and you got to create your hype curve and let people know, hey, you know, the stuff's all coming, man. But I'm telling you, we've got there first and you're going to want to be an early adopter. So you got to create that whole kind of vibe around it. And then 
And then suddenly it gets serious when you start to kind of ratchet up the quality and the and the complexity of the customers you're selling to. Suddenly you have to start hiring some big guns to go have some very high level conversations. Uh, as we did. So sometimes heads of sales or places like Telefonica and, and um, oh there was a Telstra down in uh, Australia and Vodacom in South Africa. I mean, we were hiring some pretty heavy hitters to go back into those companies and to assure the CEOs of those organizations that this was a product worth investing in. And, um, you know, it was hard, you know, so that's, that's the whole kind of sales revenue life cycle. Then you've got, you know, the whole kind of finance life cycle, which takes early days you know you typically have some insane cfo who is like willing more or less to kind of do anything he always starts with uh, or she always starts with no you can't you know you're not going to have that you go then running to the founder the founder then says carol bob let him have it for god's sake just give him the damn money and then it's like right okay that got done you know <laughs> that was your business case <laughs> <laughs> to suddenly you know you're two three hundred people in and uh, you got a grown-up CFO came from a major corporate environment who's like, uh, we have a process. You need to basically build a business case for this. You have to prove the value and worth of what it is you're trying to kind of go do, say a new HR system or something like that, uh, or whatever it is, new CRM. Yeah, and we're all going to sit down. And we're going to have a proper discussion about it, and we're going to execute on this smartly. So it just, you know, that's your whole finance cycle. So it just goes on and on. So one function after another in the business goes through a maturation process, but it does so you have to kind of do this with with an incorporation of a holistic view to say, if we do not fix this, if we do not, if we make a difficult decision from a resource perspective that we are not going to improve this process or buy this new piece of kit or get this new kind of tool up and running, what is going to be the knock-on effect and who are the basically the end users of our, of our process that are going to suffer the most? And I tell you what, you spend most of the day in those kinds of discussions and they're hard. They're hard because it's, you got a limited amount of money. And uh, it's, pre it's precious money. It, it, it's not yours uh, as yet. And so you better be careful with it. So yeah, anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of what you, what you go through inflection, uh, sorry, group after group, function after function, uh, inflection after inflection. And I'm really interested on the cultural side. And I think that the way you describe the talent almost feels like a, a sort of a good guide for all the other points you mentioned around sales and finance. And how, from a cultural perspective, do you do you bring those different levels together? So, like you mentioned, naught to hundred, you start, and it's people who are who are in it for they just they love the product, they just want to do it for. I think, like you said, donuts and drinks and on Fridays. Then you bring in a bunch of people who are steadier, and then you bring in even more people who are sort of more of your classic big corporate. How how from a cultural perspective do you do you bring all of those people together and provide them with a an organizational culture that meets all of their needs there's a lot of debate currently out there everybody's talking about culture on linkedin it seems lately it's it, really it does that and ai yeah 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 exactly right the two major subjects of the day maybe one day we'll have an ai solution that solves for the culture problem i don't know uh <laughs> it just won't need us anymore so the culture thing is interesting right so early days it's it's again around various cults around the individuals who are driving things and then around the actual products that you're that you're driving and this this issue of codification becomes one of of how do we get everybody in the company whether or not they are geographically located in the H, in the headquarters whether or not they are a vendor partner customer how do we get everybody on the same page about who we are what we're trying to get done and how we're going to go do that so 
The element is, is one of storytelling, which is what has been our past and where did we come from? Those are very exciting days and very exciting things to talk about and really root people in the fact that they are now part of that legacy, even if they were hired well after those years. Then there's this notion of where are we today and what is special about that, about this moment. But importantly, where ultimately do we want to get to tomorrow, metaphorically? But where do we want to get to as a company? And then how do we plan on doing that? And that's the point at which people then can start to psychologically attach themselves to that story. And what you need to do, if you're smart about it, is you need to make those story components real by basically backing them up with a set of core I hate to use this term because it sounds like you're going to slap some values on the wall. And I, I totally <laughs> tell people that's the last damn thing you want to do. Do not put it in any kind of employee handbook um, unless it's relevant to a process or a reward function or, you know, something. But do not list your bloody values and slap them on a wall somewhere and just point to them every time a new a newcomer comes in the door and say, look, our values. I want to pick up on that point because a previous guest of mine, so Don Morehouse, highlighted that as, again as a, a big bugbear of his. And I'd be interested for for your guidance on how do you do that process? Because there is... I think in the consulting industry, many firms that do sell values exercises, and I think there's many firms who buy, to your point, yeah. value exercises that they come up with some values around whatever you know, whatever the buzzwords are. I'm sure someone will have a value about being artificially intelligent soon. And how should people actually create those stories and that that almost that story arc from past to present to future in an authentic way? What what do you guide people? Yeah, so what, what, I, what you want to do basically is you want to be able to point to that story, ensure its authenticity, and mm. importantly ensure its utility by ensuring that, by, by creating all of the reward and recognition, promotion, and support consequences. Consequences can be good or bad, right? Around that storyline and say, look, now you understand where we are, you understand where it is we want to go, and you're clear on how we're, we're meant to be getting there. The how component basically says we are going to, and this is where you kind of embed values in terms of how you treat each other in this process. We're going to respect each other. We're going to uh, embrace in radical candor. So we're not ever going to be afraid to tell the truth about one another. We're going to be clear about whether or not we're having a good day or a bad day. We're always going to learn from both of those things every day we're going to share stories with one another and they're not always necessarily perfectly happy stories but nonetheless the stories have lessons associated with them and we're going to do whatever we can for each other to actually get through that but you what you need to do is you need to align all that stuff with real action right and and real policies and and real approaches and and um kind of supportive uh, consequences if you will for how people behave so as an example let me be clear if as a CEO of a startup company, you know, I am extraordinarily clear on the fact that I want people here to treat one another with respect, but to always be radically honest with one another as well and, and not hold anything back. And then I have somebody who abuses that situation and that person happens to be a department lead. Arguably the hardest ones, the hardest cases are my top salesperson who happens to be a real maverick, you know, a superstar, don't get me wrong. I mean, he's crushing it quarter on quarter, just absolutely nails it. And everybody wants to be her. And the issue is one of the problem with her is that along with that brilliant behavior comes some very 
non-brilliant behavior, some very painful behavior. So she's brilliant with the customers in terms of, you know, garnering attention, getting things, getting them to sign on the line that is dotted, as they say. And, um, and then she comes back to the office and starts screaming at people. Yeah, she starts taking strips off of the IT people, off the product people, off the, um, you know, the delivery and implementation people, and, and then eventually the customer care people when it kind of goes down that far of the chain. She is intolerant of having her particular brand out there uh, in the wilderness tarnished in any way, shape, or form by errant behavior that she basically feels is the company's fault and not hers. So she's living for herself as, as an example. <laughs> Typically, by the way, it's not females. I'm not entirely certain why I chose a female persona in that case. It's almost always males, but there you go. But the issue is, you know, do you tolerate brilliant jerks? Do you tolerate, you know, people who, yeah, might be crushing it from a sales perspective and God knows you need your sales. You need revenue early days and revenue is king. But are you going to tolerate that level of toxicity when it comes back to the office and starts just tearing people down and, and oftentimes quite publicly? Why is that? Why is that ever acceptable? And then you have to make a call as a founder as to whether or not you pull that person aside and say, Do you know what, Jim, Nancy, whoever, unacceptable. You do it again, and I'm sorry, but we're going to have to part ways. And I kid you not about this. I will not think twice uh, about about your existence here if this is the way you're going to treat my people. And you know better. You know, and, the, and anything I can do to help and coach you through this, that's fine. Are you having troubles outside of this? Let's talk. But this is unacceptable. And here's why it's unacceptable, because we don't accept in the how we're going to get there tomorrow part of the story. We don't accept this kind of behavior. We respect everybody and we learn from each other. And that's that's what happens. Are we clear? And then the next test of that is it happens again, because it will uh, more often than not. And um, and what do you do? You know, do you keep pandering to it? Do you keep telling them, no, 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 I'm telling you one more time, you know, don't do it. That's it. Then you're definitely, okay, this is your third strike in this kind of routine. And if that keeps going on, you know what? Everybody registers that. And that becomes then evidence against your cultural, you know, flag, your, your coat of arms, whatever, you know, whatever kind of your mantra, you know, whatever you want to call it, people basically discount it because if you're not going to live by it, then why should they? So yeah. what you need to do is basically live by that stuff. You need some very vibrant, very public examples, not just negative ones, but positive ones as well, where people crush it when people do a thing. And you know what? You pick them up and put them on your shoulder and you march them around the office saying, this is what great looks like, you know, kind of thing. I mean, that's kind of these kinds of markers are pure evidence for people to either buy into it or to discount it. And that's what you have to do is make it real. So it's and and I think that make it real points are, are really key elements. And the I'm almost hearing the two phases of codify it in a, and it, it just brought me back to the point you made around the sort of religious aspect and yep. you know have your have your parables that set out what the firm stands for so yep. your stories that set the values and then actually to your point you have to execute it otherwise they are that's when you fall down and have the the values on the wall that mean nothing yeah that's right well, without question i mean how do you think you know the ibms the at&t's you know these these kind of mega companies ever got to where they got to, basically. I and mean, there's no way they would have survived those very early days had they not, to your point, kind of codified layers and layers and layers of behavior and consequences to, and, and stuck by them, ultimately kind of then kind of expand the company. Now, arguably, those those very companies are being challenged every day now. God, AT&T has been up and down. God, who, how, how many times? 
and and reformulated itself and now is is talking about one of the largest acquisitions that's ever taken place on the planet earth so it's it's one of these things where companies will always survive if the group of humans within them are living by a code and they they adhere to that code more often than not and and people feel like there is law and there is also religion you know within those organizations that they can count on as, as being consistent. And that's hugely important. If pe people don't sense that, then it's just mayhem. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's what I, it's what I can get away with, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And, and it's, and that is not a way to grow a sustainable organization. And I think that that point and the elements we've talked around, it's, it's something that I must admit when we sort of first started talking a few weeks ago ahead of this podcast really got me thinking, because it's something I know you're, you're very, you're passionate on and, and builds on all of these points. And, and that's, that's the employee experience, because I think what we're, we're talking around here is really how firms make the experience for the employee such that they want to devote their time, be loyal and drive a business forward. And I think to your point, a lot of people talk about culture in terms of values and those elements. But I'd be really interested from your perspective, what you see employee experience as and and where that ties in with the culture point, because from what you're saying, that they sound it sounds like a core element of the startup businesses you work with. <laughs> yeah, entirely by accident, and there was there was no kind of name for it back in the day. But I guess we ended up doing a lot of it, but possibly not doing it horribly well. So this employee experience design thing, <laughs> right? Right? It sounds like a brand new fancy, you know concept that just suddenly popped up out of the blue that some some intelligent consultant came up with it's not it's stolen entirely from what consumer marketing science has been working on for arguably 10 15 years possibly longer it's this notion of know your end user know your end customer understand mm. who they are in terms of their personalities in terms of their styles in terms of their lifestyle in terms of the way they like to interact with um, your brand and get as smart about their use of the brand and their comfort with the brand and their sense of loyalty to that brand in terms of the why. And then importantly, if you can, if you're lucky enough to be able to, and they're generous enough with their ability to contribute, get them involved in creating products that are even better than the ones that they're already happy with. And that's really all this is. And all this is, is taking this from an external perspective and kind of simply moving it internally. Why this has taken so long for people to wake up to, I have no idea. And I'm not saying I'm the bright spark who basically is the only one who sees this. But man, it hit me like a diamond bullet between the eyes when this concept started to emerge. And I was like, why are we not doing this? Let's get our best employees in a room and let's put forth the challenge. The challenge is the organization has a requirement, let's say to sell, I don't know, X amount of uh, product A in a defined period of time. And we've got to get the entire company behind it. But maybe that's a bad example. Possibly a better example is we have an organizational requirement that says, we are we are failing in the wellness area you know we've got a lot of employees that are going out on stress a lot of employees have registered discomfort and unhappiness with the current environment we've had a lot of people our attrition numbers are are up and the exit interview polls are telling us that a lot of people are leaving because this this work life has become too stressful and too difficult we need to fix this issue and i'm reaching out to you my my best employees because a i don't want to lose you and i want you to know how important you are to this process b i want to design a system that is not led by hr that is not simply signed off by the c-suite or the board 
and is foisted upon you as the thing that's meant to go fix all this because that just adds insult to injury. I want to get you involved to A, hear your views, B, help us understand and pick apart all of the challenges around this thing. So imagine putting a circle up there and then talk to us about the before, the during, and the after. And let's let's literally go task by task, issue by issue, and list those things out together. You keep me honest. I'm simply here as a facilitator. You keep me honest as to what you experience in that space. And let's then go through each one of those things. And let's let's do something as simple as just indicate emojis. Are we happy with it? Are we, eh, you know, meh? Are we miserable with it? And then let's then pick the, the top three things we need to go change now. And let's go co-design, co-create a solution for this and just do this over and over and over again until we have every bloody thing fixed that we've addressed all the policies, all the processes, all the tools, the ways of working, the way we're going to approach customers, those kinds of things, guys, we want your input in designing. Now, could you imagine being part of a company where you rock up and you're not just handed a job description and said, Nick, sit down and get on with this job nine to five. You get half an hour for lunch, a couple of coffee or tea breaks. And uh, yeah, I frankly don't want to hear from you. You know, just get on with it. All I want from you is results. And you're going to get a quarterly or annual performance review might come along with a raise, depends, may come along with a promotion eventually, but please don't bother us anytime sooner about that. We'll let you know. And uh, otherwise, make sure you show up to all the company events and you don't steal anything from the company and you contribute as much of your you know, mind, body, and soul as you possibly can to this and we'll continue paying you a paycheck. Wrong. I mean, that just doesn't fly today. What mm. people want is, again, a sense of autonomy, a sense of progress, a sense of control, a sense of meaning and purpose. And all of those things are satisfied by this uh, employee design experience, employee experience design even. <laughs> and for people who, who've who heard that and think, I, I want to move that way, I just, how should they go about it? Is it just get people in a room and start kicking it around? Is there... Yeah, more of a structure. It, it could be a lot less planned and structured than you you could possibly think. I think a lot of, to your point, and I get this question a lot. A lot of people are like, oh my god, how do I even start this? I mean, do I kick off with an email? Is there some grand announcement? Do I need to tell the CEO I'm doing this? How do I actually kick this off? Just go do it. Just go find a thing that needs fixing. So take your holiday, you know, your annual holiday entitlement policy. It's probably rubbish. It probably is too tight. It screams, we're just like every other corporation. We don't stand out. And just grab your best trusted employees. Uh, and when I say trusted, people who you trust to contribute positively toward this challenge. And just say, listen, if we were going to, if we were given the green light to go change this thing from the ground up, how would we do that? And then facilitate a very quick exercise around around this circular diagram and just say, you know, how would we... Number one, kind of constitute a policy that makes sense for a broader, a broader uh, swath of our of our you know employee base. How do we create something that's flexed? How do we create something that feels right in terms of this was written for me in mind? This wasn't mm. necessarily just a corporate thing. So this notion, as an example, of, of a number of companies offering unlimited holiday. Yeah. Right. You're sort of like unlimited holiday. Like what genius came up with that plan? You know, can you imagine if the entire company decided, right, I'm going to take a year's worth of holiday, you know, and of course there, there are so kind of sub subtexts around, uh, around that and how we need to kind of manage people's time around that potentially. 
But what you find more often than not is not only are people chuffed to be a part of an environment like that, but they almost never use more than the allotted holiday that you had in the prior policy. Do you know what I mean? They don't, yeah. they don't, they don't take the mick and they don't go running off and like, right, I'm going to take three months off. Thank you very much. I'll catch you guys later. <laughs> they basically think this is lovely. If I need it, if things go down, if I have a kid and I need to be home as a parent, uh, father or mother, if I have a, you know, a, an ailing parent who needs looking after, if, if my house burns down, God forbid, and I need to basically, you know, shore that whole is issue up, if uh, whatever, I know that this company has my back because they basically said, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you during that time. And you're, you know, we'll back you and we'll make sure your job's here when you get back. And, and off you go. What a wonderful feeling, right? So that's yeah. the kind of thing that you want to kind of co-develop. But you need, to, you need to have that conversation with, you know, the HR community, potentially with the board. You know, you find representatives on that side of it, but you engage in a conversation like you've never done before. It's so interesting how companies, as they get larger, typically set themselves up with the, this is the group that manages things and drives stuff at employees. And employees, you, for the, for the paycheck you get, that's our contract and the benefits and, and whatever niceties we're willing to pass on. You basically get to stay here and produce a bunch of stuff for us. You know, that whole relationship has to change. It needs to be a co-opted, co you know, co-creative relationship that says we care about creating the best possible experience for all of us. And when we do that, man, do we increase attraction. The word gets out. You know, this is the best possible place ever. You won't believe it. And then people start to flock toward it because they're interested and curious. And suddenly you've got a pipeline that's clogged with people trying to get through the door to interview with you. And suddenly you're also watching your employees walk around with a sense of pride and passion around the company they work for because they're part of the running of the company. And, and feel like, you know, I helped actually come up with these decisions in terms of the things that are affecting all of my colleagues all day long. And uh, this feels really good. You know, this is hitting me on a bunch of intrinsic motivators that, uh, man, I didn't think a company was capable of, of tweaking. So that's the essence of it, right? And it has a lot of knock-on benefits. It lowers attrition. It increases attraction. It creates more productive people who are more passionate about delivering exponential outcomes as opposed to just arithmetic outcomes and just little iterative bits. You get people coming up with ideas all the time. You get a natural collaboration across the space. These are things that small companies benefit from all the time. And they frankly don't, aren't even aware about how, how lucky they are to be small and agile that way. But bigger companies, frankly, really, really struggle, frankly, to pull these things off. But if you employ these kinds of tools and these kinds of approaches, my God, you know, the effects are, are mesmerizing. And you, you gave the example, which I, I think goes quite a way to do it. But I'm, I'm conscious to your points, you know, these bigger companies who are less familiar with these sort of approaches, if you, as you do now in your consulting role, if you went in and said, we should look at our holiday policy with the view to offer a limited holiday, people would be, uh, I imagine some execs would sort of think <laughs> you're a bit crazy. Would fire um, you, yeah. <laughs> well, well, exactly. Yeah. I, I guess how, for those clients who you're talking to are bigger or, or to people out there at conferences and um, other meetings, what do you say to those people who say, well, come on, Jeff, that, that, sounds, that sounds great, but it's never going to work here? I say Google, Netflix, arguably places even like GE, Whirlpool, uh, Nike, 
I mean, you just list the number of companies where not only is it working, but basically it's making those companies the the rock stars that they are today. Alibaba, Amazon, uh, although Amazon's a bit of a mixed bag, depending on who you're talking to, the white color or the folks in the uh, warehouse. Um, so the thing is, is that not only is it working, but it's being used to great advantage to pull talent away from companies that are not working that that are not kind of introducing and availing themselves to this kind of thinking. Listen, there will always be people out there willing to work for you. Unfortunately, are they are they may not, they may not always be the people who are going to be superstars and they may not necessarily move you to the next plane of of uh, existence that you hope desperately to get to because if you're if you're not I would argue if you're not kind of employing facilitated discussions around co-creation around you know creating the environments that are going to be right for everybody then you're certainly not going to attract people to your mission who care deeply about their own personal direction their own sense of growth and development who basically have uh, a, a mature sense of themselves that they want to apply across their life experience these are typically the people that you meet who you think to yourself god that is that person is just brilliant they're grown up they're mature they're emotionally stable importantly they're superly emotionally intelligent they really know how to reach into the hearts and souls of others and to get people to do herculean things that you just didn't think possible look this is these are the people you want working for you right so in order to attract those people to your organization you need to kind of lay the groundwork that says not only can you create in your job and not only can you create with one another and we'll give you the support the tools and whatever resource you need to kind of make that happen we want you to help us make this company the company that you think is is just rocking that is just going to you know get you bouncing out of bed every morning and that you can't wait to pick up the phone to. And occasionally, you know, God forbid you get a call on a Saturday night. You never hesitate, right? You're sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we fix it? You know, this this company is is my second family. You never want to lose that vibe. But you only ever do that by giving up control to a degree and getting people to embrace the, the new future in a way that is meaningful and you're not messing about with it. You know, when they said that they really wanted to do this and they gave you some damn good reasons for doing it, you wrote that stuff down and you marched into the CEO's office and said, people said they wanted this done. We're going to do it. You know, boss. <laughs> and the boss was like, okay, then I guess that's a bit of a fait complete. We're, we're going to have to do it. <laughs> and, uh, and especially when people share the wealth, and, and share share the credit is what I'm trying to say with the employees that kind of made that happen. I mean, it just sends all the right messages, doesn't it? That this mm. is the place where, you know, your input is valued and, they, and that where you can basically model and, and shape the organization of the future that you want us to be. Man, I'd work for a company like that all day long. Mm. And I think it comes back to that point around culture as well isn't it like you say of it's the employees feeling like they're part of it and able to shape the the organization and the organization following through on that because the yeah. i'm sure many people have have been involved in employee workshops that lead nowhere and like you say the the ones the rock stars and the the companies you name follow up on that follow through on that and that's why to your point the the people they're trying to attract want to go and work for them well, when they, when they see evidence of this stuff coming to fruition, I think what's really exciting about it is they start to take personal accountability for the outcomes and for the shaping of it all, which is really cool because then you have you don't have to manage them anymore. They manage one another and hold each other to, to account. 
to make sure that, you know, the things that they said would come true, come true, and that the outputs that they promised they would deliver on the back end of it are actually coming, coming true. And, uh, you know what I mean? You get a, a sense yeah. of, you know, we're all in this together and this isn't some, somebody else's problem. Um, this is, this is ours to go solve for. And clearly the organizations, uh, illustrated that. So let's, let's kick in, let's make it happen. And I think that brings us really, really nicely on to the next question, because we, we've covered a huge amount of ground around sort of your journey with startups, the startup growth journey, culture, employee engagement. And I wanted to ask about books. So this is something I ask all of my guests. Um, I do like to read a lot. I, I know prior to the prior to our conversation, you were, you were talking about how you've done a lot of reading around these subjects. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, which what books do you find yourself recommending most to to your clients, let's say? And I can see behind you where we're speaking, you have a huge uh, yeah, bookshelf. Yeah, i got a library. Yeah. I'm not going to bore you <laughs> with a million different titles. This is one of my favorites, though, is um, The Employee's First, Customer Second, um, book by Vineet Nair, mm-hmm. uh, who was the uh, CEO of HCL Technologies. And um, this was a company that very quickly was a, like a number 25 nowhere company in India. Mm. And it was, a, it was an IT outsourcing kind of organization. And Vineet was running a spinoff of that that was focused on satellite technology and crushing it. I think he had a group of like 300 people and his like year over year revenue rise was like 300% plus. And the board of the larger company at HCL came to him and said, look, we're stagnant. We don't know how to get out of our own way here. We think you're doing a phenomenal job. Can you come over and run this other company? And he told him, absolutely not. I'm not interested in big companies. I don't do that. He ultimately got talked into doing it. And it's basically a story, a very brilliant, fast read, actually, as most books written by CEOs often are. <laughs> it was basically his story of, of how he turned the he took the job on and he said, get out of my way. And I don't want you to criticize anything I'm about to do, but you're not going to you're not going to like it. And he basically turned the company up, up on its head and he put all the employees at the coalface who had customer contacts in charge of the company in charge of the company's direction, strategy, optics, uh, resource requirements, and everything else. And then he put all the management of the organization, half of whom quit, by the way, off the back of this advice. He put them directly in service of the employees of the coalface, fascinatingly, and put them on a ticketing system, right? And so he monitored their behavior and their responses, including HR, legal, middle management, everybody, including himself. And he basically said, right, we're going to go solve for all these problems and we are going to be a phenomenon. You talk about the ultimate employee experience book, that is it. Mm. And uh, it's inspiring as, as all get out. The other book I'm super excited about, um, and then we'll leave it here uh, from a book perspective, is Salim Ismail's book called Exponential Organizations. Okay, it's not one I've, I've heard of. Ooh, yeah, you got to tuck into this one. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Salim Ismail works over at the singularityuniversity.org group out in um, Mountain View, California. Um, and these, this is Ray Kurzweil's legacy back to humanity, basically Ray Kurzweil being Google's futurist. And Ray basically put together a cast of characters that are exceptional in terms of their forward thinking. Peter Diamandis, as an example, Peter, Peter Thiel, a lot of famous names in the space of, of technological advancement, not just software tech, but any kind of tech across the human expanse. And these guys are kind of looking at how disruptive 
forces are basically going to upend everything we know about everything we've ever come from. And it's happening as we're, as we're seeing it. It's really kind of in the beginning, interestingly enough. But Salim Ismail went and took a look at the unicorn market. And he said, what are these companies doing that are radically different to what other companies possibly can do? As an example, with less than 50 people in fewer than five years, with arguably in some cases fewer than you know uh, $500,000, you suddenly create a company that's worth over a billion. Like, how did that happen? And so what he does is he simply goes and dissects, and it's not a hard book to read, it's actually a brilliant read, with some very simple visual models in it, but he basically describes what the new kind of 21st century organization is going to look like. And uh, it's a fascinating read. It's, you can see it, it's so dead simple. When, when you look at it and you're like, of course, you know, that's how you do that. Uh, it's about setting up communities. It's about having people in laptops and remote locations, uh, having no kind of core expenses. It's about uh, the right algorithms that kind of drive the right outcomes. It's, you know, it's simple stuff, but all strung together, you know, kind of leads to ultimately hugely disruptive forces that basically are taking legacy systems that humans have created and profited from over the course of time and destroying them. And that would be, you know, the hotel industry, that would be the, the cab industry, you know, the healthcare industry, basically any system that is bunged up by bureaucracy and is strung out by too much middle management and too much red tape and doesn't, doesn't deliver on its promise is basically bound for massive disruption. And if you listen to Salim Ismail, he's talking about governments. He's talking about every institution we've ever known, education, financial airlines, travel, I mean, you name it, it's all happening now. But um, yeah, this book basically kind of outlines uh, what's going to replace it. And I would tell anybody who wants to kind of see into the future to kind of grab onto this. And I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but it's damn near, it's proving itself over and over again. And this book's already a couple of years old. So that's me on books. Fantastic. Well, two great books that I, I've not come across before, and we'll definitely go and check them out because it's, uh, especially I think the the way you've spoken about both of them sounds like there's some really good insights in there and a lot of the points we've talked about in this conversation and a lot around that point you highlight around actually future-proofing your current business or seeing the disruptive elements for a new business if that's what people are, people are looking to create. So last question and thank you so much for your time and it's been a really, really interesting discussion. So it's great to have you on the show. Sure. The, the, the last question is more towards my my consulting audience. And I'd be really interested in your take given everything we've talked about here. And this is a question I ask all of my guests. And that is for a single piece of advice for three different people. So the first is one who is just starting their consulting career. The second is someone who is four to five years into their consulting career, so sort of mid-20s. And then the third is for someone at the senior end who's getting to the point of approaching partner. So in a traditional consulting firm, they'd say be a director or principal, and they're getting to the point where they may take a, an equity position in the firm. Mm. I'd be really interested in in your advice and take advice wherever you choose to for each of those people at each of those points. Mm. Wow, that's a powerful question. <laughs> and it's a good one to ask everybody because I'm sure you possibly get some very different answers. So for the, the person who's just coming in, my advice is swallow your pride. What you don't know is a lot. Uh, as as uh, that great quote uh, from Olympia Dukakis and Moonstruck, right? What you don't know is a lot. 
I'm almost kind of talking to my own uh, early stage self here because I was <laughs> full of pride and I was full of, I got all the answers. I just came out of university. I know everything. And what you people don't know is a lot and you can learn from me. And of course, I got a good battering right up front at Arthur Anderson in particular is where I recall doing that. Listen to what you're being told. Do what you're being asked to do. Learn in every facet of your job, even if that involves take this box of papers down to the shredder and and sort it all out. You know what? Find out what's in those pages. You know what I mean? Like, you know, or just do it at speed. You know, get efficient with the shredder. I mean, do just learn a million little things along the way and become become a utility. Let people see you as being somebody who gets things done at speed and who doesn't ask too many questions and doesn't isn't too full of himself. That's all you want to accomplish early days. The second stage, I think, is where you clearly want to have been asking questions along the way. You will have found yourself a mentor by now and getting support from a career perspective uh, to get smarter and smarter. Ask that person all the questions you need to ask. Otherwise, make sure that you're just clear on what it is you are being asked to do. Don't ever assume that you think you've got this and produce the wrong thing for the partner or manager who's asking you to deliver it. Always be inquisitive and curious, but never a pain in the butt at the backside. Be that person who questions when there is a concern about the quality of the deliverable to the customer and is otherwise all about the team that they're working with and in support of the mission which is let's have the best possible outcome for the customer and let's continue building on our reputation as a consultancy so that's a, again that middle layer where you've gotten smarter about things but you just now need to kind of be adding value both to your internal team but also to your external client in terms of just about to kind of consider the partner launch or leap i should say I think what you want to do there is make sure that you take a good, long, hard look at the organization you're about to do it with. Typically, you're you're extraordinarily well versed um, in terms of that that company's values, in terms of its reputation, in terms of where it's headed. But listen, even the best, <laughs> including the company I I originally started my career with, Arthur Anderson, they can fall to some pretty serious behaviors that possibly turn the company sideways. This has happened arguably to every big four. I'm sure McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group and a bunch of others have suffered these things along the way as well, errant behavior, possibly on, on the back of rogue uh, characters. But just make sure you know what you're signing up for. You're about basically to sign your career and your and your life away, basically, from an equity perspective and from a brand loyalty perspective to this organization. So make sure this is right for you in terms of, yes, the reputational elements, but also for your own value system and make sure you're, you know, you will be happy to commit and uh, and really throw yourself at the longevity of this company and the people within it and that you are going to kind of possess those leadership capabilities and skills that are ultimately going to get you through that with success. So it's, it's a deep down life-changing decision and make sure that you're ready for that one. And again, I would always rely on external mentors and or coaches to make sure that you double check yourself and that the voice inside your head is telling you what you need to hear, but importantly, voices outside are aligning with that. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that advice. And like I said, 
Really enjoyed our conversation. If people want to find out more about you, want to, you know, they've heard this, they want to get you into to help them with their culture, with them looking at their employee experience, where can they, where can people find out about you? Where, where can they get in touch? Yeah, certainly on LinkedIn, uh, just simply under Jeff Wellstead and or you can email me at jeff at bigbearpartners.com. Big Bear Partners is is my consultancy and happy to uh, take phone calls. All of my contact information is out there on LinkedIn and fully available for people to uh, to ho- exploit, hopefully positively. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, you know, more than happy to uh, to help where I can and um, and support any any further efforts and in, in the things we talked about. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that. I will put all of those details in the show notes. So we will we'll put your phone number down and see uh, if you get too many calls, tell me and we can take it out of the show notes. Uh, but Jeff, really enjoy this. So thank you very much. Um, Pleasure. And all the best for the rest of your week. Great. Thanks very much, Nick. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.